Episode 4, we heard from drug users and healthcare professionals in their tug of war between government imposed regulations and exhibiting a duty of care. Now we delve into the world of the pharmacist, the GP, and a drug user just trying to fill a script or collusion. A pharmacist deals with practically nothing other than drug use, but that's not what you mean. That's Brian. Brian is a pharmacist with over 20 years of experience who deals with drug users on a fairly regular basis. We learn pretty quickly that Brian is a straight-talking, tell-it-as-it-is kind of guy. Brian tells us that in addition to being involved in the pharmacies that he's worked in, he's also been involved in some community work in his local area and has no problem offering advice on how he thinks the methadone program should be run, what it does and what it doesn't do. I've always had a, a very simple approach with, uh, we, you know, there's a contract that most pharmacists get a new client to, to sign which says I will do this and you will do that and goes on for several pages and when I've done that my statement then is okay you've signed that now I'll give you my rules you treat me right you treat uh, I treat you right you treat me wrong you're going to have a problem uh, which we all understand uh, and I don't have problems uh, anyone that's difficult on a particular day, I do nothing on the day and the next time I come in I say, your behaviour yesterday wasn't wonderful, let's try and see that it doesn't happen again. I wouldn't call it a skill, it's a reality for me. I, I, I've got my problems, you've got your problems. Let's try and not hurt each other with the problems we've got. We look after each other and uh, do what we need to do to have a successful outcome on both sides. And that means politeness and normal, you know, normal behaviour. Kim probes a little further to see if there is a difference in attitude towards drug users in a pharmacy. Is there a difference for someone picking up their methadone versus their heart medication after years of eating fatty foods and not exercising? Brian tells us this story about providing the same service regardless. Any pharmacy I work in, yes, they would. Some pharmacies I know they don't. I I castigated a a long-term friend of mine in in a town far from where I am who I called in to see on holidays once and he said, oh, are you involved in methadone? I said, yes. He said, what do you think? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, I've got a laneway behind me and I've built in a window, a lockable window at, the, at that in the lane so that when they come, they can come into the lane and knock on the window and I've got their dose and I give them their dose so that my other customers don't have to see them. And then my favourite bit that made us all fall a little bit more in love with Brian. I tore into him. have never and will never treat anybody that comes into the shop any differently than anyone, any other, anyone else. Uh, it's, well, you know, they've got their problems. But for whatever reason, one of them is, is they've, they've got a, a problem that needs regular medication. I've got other problems. I don't necessarily want to hear about their problems. I want to help them if I can. But to, to treat them as, as, you know, unclean almost... I think he's very, very wrong, and uh, it comes back to what I said earlier. I'm apparently not at all judgmental. Uh, I had a father that said, treat everybody well, be a little careful who you invite into your home. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I've stuck to it. We wondered then how a methadone program is supposed to be run. 
What is the desired experience for the pharmacist and the drug user involved? Brian explains that they have a separate dedicated area that's a bit more semi-private. Methadone clients seem to know where they need to go, while other customers intuitively realise that area is not for them. Brian seems to be as reluctant about the government-imposed paperwork as most people who have to fill out forms. But he knows he needs to report on what they've dosed. Other than that, it seems like a fairly run-of-the-mill kind of transaction. They engage in some small talk, either take the dose there, or back up their takeaway doses, and then they're on their way to the register for payment. Now, uh, some of these people, like all of us, have money problems. Some of them get behind in payment. Uh, I've heard of pharmacies that say, if you don't pay me up to date in advance, I will cease dosing you. I've never been able to do that with a clear conscience. But I uh, gently chide, I suppose I would say, and say, you, you realise I know you've got, pro, you, yeah, you've got money shortages, etc. so is everybody, but I cannot continue to supply this unless you can make an effort to pay for it as well as you can. And that, yeah, that, that varies from pharmacy to pharmacy, you know, and from within the same pharmacy, different pharmacists can have different attitudes towards it. It's a, a vexed question, shall we say. Well, it is because from a basic sort of um, human aspect, denying them their treatment, you know, could force them onto the street into a dangerous situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. There have been all sorts of convoluted schemes to make it part of the free, in inverted commas, medicine scheme. The logistics just don't seem to work. And, you, you know, you've got pharmacists tied up for a relatively large amount of time each day looking after even only 20 or 30 people. And somewhere that's got to be paid for. And, uh, it, you know, there are, there are costs involved. It can't be free in the terms that a lot of us would like it to be. Now, I think the clinic's... The government-run clinics don't charge. But, you know, when you get someone that rings up and says, look, I've got a choice of either coming in today and dosing or finding some food for the kids for tonight, what do you do? You say, come in anyway and we'll sort it out tomorrow or the next day. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I've never been comfortable in, in refusing people in either sorts of treatments or any other medication for the sake of you know, a couple of dollars. Jude tells Kim about a Christmas period where she had to renew her script and she had three days before that shutdown period. You know the one where most of us are concerned about counting down the days to the sales. Look, for some reason I'd forgotten um, and, you know, 25 years I've been on this program um, so I think people, you know, know about my... Um, they know me better than I know myself probably. So, so I couldn't get to see a doctor. I couldn't... Get it, so I couldn't get a script. So the chemist in other situations would give you, because when I was on antibiotics, I would get a packet of antibiotics to take until my script came through. But because it was methadone, the chemist was too frightened to give me the, the methadone to cover that period. Too, too frightened or legally not allowed well, to? Well, look, he could have done it because they do it with other drugs, but because it was, and it's happened before. I, I know it's happened. Other people have had it happen to them. So no, it's, it's his fear about drug users and drugs. Professor Gowing suggests that in some cases it's not so much the fear of drug users and drugs, rather the strict government sanctions that are in place to be part of the program. It's kind of one of those issues that we, we have to deal with um, when you're working with 
drugs that are sub- subject to regulatory restrictions and that's something that is not going to change in a hurry. So because um, methadone or slow-release oral morphine or all of these preparations, they're schedulate drugs, which um, means that there are controls placed on the, the prescribing and, and dispensing of those. Um, and, and while I, I can appreciate that clients feel that, um, that this is uh, an indication of a lack of trust in them, um, it's something that, it's one of those practical things that you really have to live with. We raised with Brian Jude's story over the holiday period and her fear of not being able to get a script in time before everything closes. Brian sighs and explains that unfortunately they have to have a valid current prescription with an authorisation that the person presenting is approved to have the medication. There's just no legal way around it and he can get into a lot of trouble. In saying that, he has thought about it. We have a system where we start reminding people a week before their prescription runs out. Um, I've tried to get a system going with the main clinic here that they, when they see someone, they make the next appointment and they give us a couple of cards with the details on it so we can remind them earlier. Uh, it does happen, and then, then you've got the panic of trying to ring a doctor, get a fax, etc., etc., etc. And of course, it's going to be Friday or Saturday or Sunday when this happens. Brian acknowledges the stress that a patient can go through if they can't get to their GP to get a script and tells us that the computer system they use knows when a patient's script is about to expire and lets them know a week in advance. It's just one device they are trying to work within the constraints of the system. Brian also says that a patient's GP can generally authorise a week or two extras if necessary until they can get in to see the doctor and get their prescription. You know, look, some, some of the clients are brilliant at keeping tabs on dates and things. Some are hopeless and it's like the rest of us, we're good at some things and bad at other things. But you've got to learn, your, well, you get to know your, your customers, I suppose, is one way to put it. You get to know your clients and you get to know which ones you can help easily, which ones need a little bit more help, uh, and on you go. Jude turns the conversation to the communication that happens between the doctor and the pharmacist. She reminds us that this is one of the reasons that passing is so important. Of course they talk to each other and, you know, a chemist will ring up the doctor and says, oh, you know, so-and-so came in looking a bit, you know, shady today, so the next time the doctor gets to see her for a script, he'll be running up and down her arms and, oh, yeah, you make sure that you're well presented so they think, you you know, there's signs and signals which we all know that tell people whether you're managing or not, yeah? So you get to know what they are and you make sure you present them. Brian? What do you think of that? What we also try and encourage is that, uh, well, this is a bit of a hobby horse. You go to the doctor every three or six months to get a prescription. You scrub up, you're nice and clean and bright and shiny and and, uh, wouldn't hurt a fly. And the doctor sees you and says, okay, that's fine, I'll see you in six months. We see them four or five or six times a week. Doctors will probably benefit from ringing a pharmacy occasionally and saying, how's Freddie going? How's Julie going? Is she dosing regularly? Is she coming in? Is she, you know, etc. Uh, it does not happen very often. So there's an area where uh, <clears throat> I will, if necessary, ring a doctor and say, hey, listen, you better have a look at so-and-so. But that doesn't happen much in 
in general amongst most pharmacies, I'm, I'm afraid. Kim digs a little deeper to see if there is a physical legal requirement for the GP and pharmacist to be talking to each other. So there's no legal requirement for you to be reporting back to a GP on the state no of their client? No legal requirement. Um, I, I have always, me and I don't know about anyone else, but I've always felt if there's anything happening, the doctor should know. But I came from a small town and, and the four clergy from the various churches, the police, the doctors, the pharmacists and a couple of other people in town would... Regularly, you'd ring someone, one other person in that group and say, John needs, needs a bit of help. It'd be a good idea if you spoke to Susie. Uh, and it just happened. It doesn't happen in big places. And uh, it, it's missing. And, and I think there's still a lot of pharmacists who are frightened to ring a doctor and tell him anything at all because he or she might then get cranky with them because they're only pharmacists. I've never felt that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a professional in a different area to the doctor. Right? We both have responsibilities. We should be working together. And uh, I've never had a problem talking to a doctor about anything. And from David, our GP? Okay, with opioid substitution, there's a big legal framework. The pharmacist must ring the prescriber if um, the patient is appears intoxicated. And that's a legal requirement. Um and then the prescriber then has a dilemma, what do they do? They have to then make a very quick decision. Is it safe for the pharmacist to dispense medication to someone who maybe is intoxicated because of the risk of drug overdose, which can be fatal? Kim moves the conversation to take away doses. So what's the difference? T- tell me a little bit about the program in terms of... So obviously the takeaway taking away of methadone from the pharmacist is providing you with a level of trust? little personal agency, yes. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. And trust, and that's patronising, yes. <laughs> so, yes, there's all these layers, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, yeah, it is patronising. You behave and we'll give you this, pat you on the head. Brian explains that it's the GPs that determine who gets the takeaway doses, not the pharmacist. Brian goes on to explain the regulations around takeaways. The idea is that a dose is served every day and after a period of stability, normally around three months, a patient can have one takeaway. As the patient continues to improve, the takeaway doses might increase to up to four. Well, that's Brian's experience anyway. He also did mention that there are special circumstances like having a job where the patient's work hours prevent them from being able to get to the pharmacy. These patients can have up to five. And uh, I, you know, I... Thinking back over nearly 20 years, I can only think of once or twice where I've said, oh, I'd be a bit careful. Uh, and I think there's a, a growing appreciation of giving, that giving people ownership of their problem, as in, you, you are now, I think, stable enough to have four takeaways a week. Please prove me right in what I'm saying. And I think once you're able to do that, and do that with your head held high, that's, it's, it's good for your stability. Uh, one of the areas that, one of the things I'm, you know, I've got a few years under my belt, one of the things in which I now get uh, quite a degree of pleasure within pharmacy is seeing people come onto this program and become more stable and start to get a grip on their lives and start to be able to benefit from a, a regular routine, even though they hate it. Mm. And yeah, the ones that call chemical handcuffs, they're absolutely right. But if it means they can get other areas of their life into some sort of a more stable routine, 
and they then start to benefit from that. I'm quite pleased to see that happen. According to Associate Professor Gowing, South Australia does not permit patients to have takeaway doses. While in New South Wales, it is possible for patients to have a number of takeaway doses each week. Some of this takeaway methadone finds itself sold as a commodity, selling for between 50 cents and $1 per mill. When there's, there's someone who's prepared to um, pay money for a commodity, there's always someone who's, who's prepared to supply it. Um, there, there are all sorts of... Um, I mean, this is part of the reason for the uh, communication between the, the, the prescriber and the dispenser it's part of the reason why methadone is um, is largely now provided under under super supervision, um, whereas um, buprenorphine, which is uh, less easily diverted um, to the black market, is is there is a little bit more freedom in how that's able to be dispensed. Not on Brian's watch. I suppose I need to be delicate. Uh, and the, it wouldn't work, but there are some people where the doctors think if I give this prescription to this person, it may end up somewhere other than where it ought to be and it may be then used correctly. Now, in fact, that, that uh, cannot happen because of the way the authorities work and, and where anyone in the geographical area I'm in, uh, if someone came in with a, a stranger with a methadone prescription, you would have a lot of questions and it wouldn't work. So where does that leave us? We can work within the system as much as we can to, um, I guess, acknowledge the autonomy of the individual, but unfortunately um, not not all people, whether they're drug users or not, not all people can be trusted. Um, and there is that, that difficult environment out there um, so the, the communication between the prescriber and the dispenser um, is, is one of those regulatory situations that, that uh, governments insist on. I think Brian shapes this better than anyone we spoke to. Human nature in any circumstance. Yes, it's the, the 95 and the 5%, 5% of whatever... Uh, don't do things properly and ruin it for the other 95%. In this episode, we heard about how pharmacists are also affected by a highly regulated industry, but there are still ways to work within that system and provide care to their customers. We met and loved Brian and found that he was a wealth of knowledge when it came to his experience working with drug users. He's panache for people. Brian provides plenty of advice to his peers and cohort of medical professionals regarding how to include and make someone feel comfortable rather than segregate. In this series, while we focused on something so seemingly simple as visiting the GP and getting a script, as we dug deeper, it was revealed that it was so much more than that for drug users and healthcare professionals alike. We hope that whether you are a drug user, a healthcare professional, or anyone who took the time to listen, that you've been exposed to the other side of a story that you might not have been privy to before. And even just starting to think about the interaction between drug users and healthcare professionals and introducing a dialogue is more than we could have hoped for in the making of this series. Make sure you check out the resources to help support a normal, uneventful, ordinary trip to see the doctor or pharmacist. Summertime just comes around once a year, boy. Summertime just comes around once a year. 
If the sun was shining, don't you be inside crying? 'Cause summertime just comes round once a year, boy. 